we're so pleased to welcome Pam Genoff to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore for the first time as she presents her brand new novel, The Lost Girls of Paris, which is holding strong at number two on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, and we're going to do our best to get it to number one, Pam. Um, Pam is the author of several books of historical fiction, including the New York Times bestseller, The Orphan's Tale. She holds a degree in international affairs from George Washington University and a degree in history from Cambridge. And she received her JD from UPenn. Her novels are inspired by her experiences working at the Pentagon and as a diplomat for the State Department handling Holocaust issues in Poland. She lives with her husband and three children near Philadelphia, where she teaches law. Novelist Kate Quinn writes that Pam Genoff's meticulous research and gorgeous historical world building lifts her book, uh, books to must-buy status. And uh, best-selling novelist Lisa Wingate adds, fraught with danger and filled with mystery, The Lost Girls of Paris is a fascinating tale of the hidden women who helped to win the war. Without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Pam Genoff. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Um, and I'm just thrilled to visit this stunning store. I've never been here before. And although, <coughs> excuse me, it's my first visit to Midtown Scholar, I should tell you I feel like a bit it's a bit of a homecoming for me. My very first boyfriend about 30 years ago lived just blocks from here in downtown Harrisburg. And my husband is from Lancaster, so it's a wonder that I have not set a book in central Pennsylvania yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. I also want to thank all of you for taking time out of your um, busy weekends and a holiday weekend at that to join me. When my first book came out um, many years ago, my first book signing was at the University of Pennsylvania Bookstore, and they scheduled it during spring break. So I never assume, <coughs> excuse me, when I stand up that anyone will be there, and I'm so grateful to you for being here today. What I'd like to do is a couple things. I'm going to give you just a little bit of my background as to how I became a writer and came to write these books, and then I will tell you about The Lost Girls of Paris, which is um, just over two weeks old. It's just been out a little bit. And then what I'd like to do, I don't read. I don't think you need to hear me read, but I'd rather just tell you a bit of background and then open it up for questions so we can have more of a conversation about whatever is on your mind. So my journey to becoming a writer started, I used to say 20 years ago, but I think it's more like 25 now, when I was sent as a diplomat by the US State Department to Krakow, Poland. Now, I didn't go to Poland to work on war issues. I went to Poland to stamp visas and passports and help Americans when they got in trouble overseas. But at that moment in time, in the mid-1990s, Poland and the neighboring countries had just come out of those decades and decades of communism. And all during those years, when they were cut off from the West and their free speech was stifled, they had never been able to resolve any of their issues from World War II. So when we got to the 1990s and communism ended, those issues were frozen in time. They had never been resolved. And it became very important for them to resolve those issues because Poland and the Czech Republic and other countries wanted to join NATO and wanted to join the European Union, and politically that could not happen unless they made progress on their issues from World War II. So when I arrived in Poland, I was a young girl in my early 20s, and at that point everyone can do the math and know exactly how old I am, but I was, and I was halfway around the world from my family alone. And you must remember this is before cell phones, this is before the internet, and so I was really over there by myself. 
and I'm personally Jewish, and I gravitated toward the surviving Jewish community in Krakow, Poland. I was with them on Shabbat and other times for these many, many months and years, and the elderly people there became like grandparents to me. So the U.S. government, seeing my relationship with the survivors, said, okay, you handle all that stuff from the war, go. And it was, um, you know, we're eight Americans in Krakow, so it wasn't terribly formal. And for two and a half years, that was my job. Whether Elie Wiesel was upset because Polish Boy Scouts, with good intentions, had put up crosses and stars on the field where his family died, I would go out there and try and work it out. Or then First Lady Hillary Clinton wanted to tour one of the concentration camps, so I spent a week at Auschwitz with the Secret Service. Anything that needed to be done on the ground. I want to tell you that this work was tremendously rewarding. We were able to bring together Polish teachers with American teachers so they could learn how to teach their children about the Holocaust because they had never done it. On the at the same time, it was incredibly difficult to be on the ground in that part of the world having the hard talks about who had done what during the war. My own life over there was similarly conflicted because on one hand it was a rich and rewarding experience to live in worship as a Jewish woman in defiance of all the Nazis had tried to do there. But on the other hand, I was living on such geogra close geographic proximity to World War II that in order to have my car fixed at a mechanic, I would have to drive past the camp from Schindler's List. And while you may know how you're gonna feel the first time you visit a gas chamber, when you walk into the same one for the 50th time, what toll does that start to take on your personal psyche? And so the challenge of my years in that part of the world was, how do I live appropriately solemn you know, for what has taken place here, but not have my own life become a graveyard? I um, left Poland in 1998, and I did not continue on in diplomatic service. I came back to the Philadelphia area, and I went to law school at Penn. But I knew that I was always going to write a book set, uh, you know, based on and inspired by my experiences in that part of the world, and not just any book, a novel. You might say, how did you know that? When I was a little kid, even further back in time, I always wanted to be a writer. But through my many years of school and my years abroad, when I had all the time in the world to write, I never got that project off the ground. Something always held me back. And everyone knows what I mean, because you all have one project in your closet you want to get going. And for me, that was the novel. The turning point in my life was 9-11. I went, graduated from law school at Penn, and I became a practicing attorney at a large law firm in Philadelphia, and I started work on September 4, 2001. One week later, 9-11 happened. And I had a life epiphany, and you'll forgive me for being flip about such a serious day, but I call my life epiphany, dear God, I don't want to die at the law firm. And what I meant by that was that being a lawyer was a fine and admirable profession, but I'd always wanted to be a writer. And if I had been a 9-11 victim, I never would have realized my dream. I had to get started. I didn't have forever. So I took a course at Temple Night School in Philadelphia. If you know Philadelphia, it was right at 15th and Market. And that course was called Write Your Novel This Year. True story. They, it's also true that they later changed that course to Write Your Novel This Month. And I would not have taken that. That sounds really scary. But I took Write Your Novel This Year, and I began to work on my first book. Of course, there were two catches in my new writing plan. 
the first was, although I was now a serious writer, you know, I was now a serious writer, I was also a new attorney at a big city law firm, and I had $1,000 a month in student loan debt to repay. I couldn't just go write in a castle now that I was serious. So I used to write my books from 5 to 7 in the morning every day before I went to the law firm for many years. Now I have three small children, ages 10 and under, and you all know you don't get 5 to 7 in the morning <laughs> anymore, so I had to find other ways, but that was the drill. The other catch was although I started out in 2001, it would be five years and 39 publisher rejections until the last known publisher on earth, I should stop saying that because they're my current publisher, but the last known publisher on earth made a tiny little offer uh, for my first book. Now the things have gone pretty well. Lots of people in publishing like to act like they knew it all along. I have rejection letters from all of them. So. So I wrote my first book, Commandant's Girl, and um, that had a sequel and a prequel. That's a whole other story. I have a love-hate relationship with sequels. Um, and I've written any number of books in between, and if you'd like to ask me about any of those, please feel free during the Q&A, but if you say too much, I might shush you, since other people might not have read it. Um, but I'd like to tell you a little bit about my latest book, The Lost Girls of Paris. So The Lost Girls of Paris is a little different. It didn't come out of my own experiences, but a story I discovered about the remarkable women who served in Britain's special operations executives. So let me tell you some about the real history behind the book. In 1940, in the darkest days of World War II, things were not going well for the Brits. They were losing battles, they were being bombed, and their intelligence services had had, had, had some pretty major missteps. Winston Churchill created SOE, Special Operations Executive, in his own words, to set Europe ablaze. And what he wanted the agents to do was to drop behind enemy lines, and it was not intelligence work, it was not true espionage, it was sabotage, blow up factories and railway lines, and subversion, which was to liaise with the local partisans and people. And the idea was to slow down the Germans so that it would be easier for the Allies when the cross-channel invasion finally came. The problem in SOE was that the original agents were men. And the problem with being a man and trying to be undercover, a young man, on the streets of France, say, in the 1940s, is there were not a lot of young men left. They were all either conscripted, they were arrested. And so the British men who tried to go unnoticed really stuck out very easily. Someone said, why don't we send the women? And this was a radical idea, um, partly because no one thought they could do it necessarily, but also where do you find the women? We found the men from the military and from the colleges, and you didn't have those natural pipelines for female recruitment. But they found women. Women came from all walks of life in Britain. They were recruited. Um, on Baker Street in London, just like Baker Street, Sherlock Holmes, those were the unmarked SOE offices were. And if they were deemed suitable, deemed, deemed suitable, um, excuse me, a little tired from the tour, if they were deemed suitable, they were sent to training schools all over England, different training schools, basic training, specialized, and finishing school. And then they were dropped behind enemy lines in Europe. And I mean literally dropped there's this tiny little airplane called a Lysander, and what they would do is the plane could touch down anywhere. It only holds about three people. The plane would touch down, and a woman would get off in France and go find her contacts all by herself. 
Once on the ground over there, the women did the same work as the men. They were radio operators working the wireless to and from London to communicate. They were couriers delivering messages, and they engaged in the sabotage as well. And it worked really, really well. I would say too well, because what happened was, as SOE grew, the networks became bigger and entangled. That's not what you want in clandestine work. You want small, discrete networks, and everybody became tangled with each other. The other piece was, as they became more successful, they were really showing up on the German counterintelligence radar, and they became a major target of the Germans trying to arrest these SOE agents, male and female. There were a number of betrayals that happened to the agents, and once they started getting arrested, the whole thing fell like a house of cards. The Germans, uh, they arrested people under a program called Nacht und Nebel, Night and Fog, and it was designed to make the worst enemies of the Reich disappear without a trace. And about 12 of the women, um, in, in reality, never came back. Everything I've just told you to this point is true. My book, The Lost Girls of Paris, looks at the women of SOE through three lenses. The first lens is Marie. She's a young woman who goes to serve SOE in France, and she makes the unfathomable decision to leave her young daughter, she's a single mom, and go serve SOE. The second woman in my book is named Eleanor Trigg, and she's the spy handler who oversees the girls. And she's inspired by a real-life woman named Vera Atkins, who really did recruit and train and deploy the women and when the women disappeared, Vera and my character, Eleanor, went looking to see not just what had happened to these women, but why and how they had been captured. The last woman in my book is somewhat different. Her name is Grace Healy. She's living in 1946 New York, and she is what I call not quite a war widow. She lost her husband during World War II, but not to combat. She lost him in a pre-deployment accident. And she is living alone in New York City, trying, wrestling with grief and guilt and trying to figure out what comes next for her when she discovers an abandoned suitcase in Grand Central Terminal. Inside the suitcase are pictures of 12 young women. And she discovers that the woman who owns the suitcase, Eleanor Trigg, has just been killed in an accident outside Grand Central. And so the book becomes Grace's personal quest to figure out what happened to these women and who they were. I think I'm going to stop there. I can go on um, for many topics, but what I'd like to do is I hope you have some questions and I'll answer about my background or the books or about writing or about research. My only caveat is I'm a law school professor by day and my answers are really long. <laughs> so is there anything I can answer for you? If anyone has a question, just raise your hand and I'll come through with the mic. If it's easier, I can repeat the question. I was just wondering what you did to research this novel. Did you travel somewhere or go over records? Or okay, so the, so the question about what did I do to research this novel, and the reason my answers are long is because I take, I see, when I see here your question, I hear like six questions in there, and I try and answer. The, so I'm gonna answer your question maybe in a little bit broader context. So it's funny, a few years ago, I was on a panel somewhere in New England with two other authors who don't write historical fiction, and one of them said, just kind of open the computer and start typing. 
And I was like, what? Because, you know, as a historical fiction writer, there's this whole other job kind of that goes along with it, which I enjoy. I have a, a master's in history and I love dusty archives. I love the research piece, but it is a whole other job. And I always say with research, there's really three questions. How do you do the research? How do you weave in the research to fiction so you don't get a big dump of something historical just because I think it's interesting that breaks up the story? And how do you not screw up the research? Because every book, no matter how many times we, proof we proofread it, has a mistake in it. It just happens. Um, but your question is really about how you do the research. And it, it varies from book to book. Um, it really depends if it's somewhere I have been before. If it's some I lived in Europe for about five years, so there's places I know very well. I know writers who go to Italy four times for a single book, which sounds lovely, but not in the practicalities of my life. So for this particular book, I did not travel. I've been to most of these places before, but I didn't have the ab ability to travel. So my research, well, let me say my process, I'm what I call a contemporaneous researcher. So there are some authors I know who have to do all the research first. And one author said the research has to be sewn into her skin. And for me, it's not like that. I only need a bit of research ahead of time, and then I can research on an as-needed basis, which is very useful because it's a different part of my brain that does the research versus the writing. Um, and this book, <coughs> so I use a wealth of sources. Um, books are huge. I am lucky to teach at Rutgers, and I have access to the world's largest library system, and they'll get me any book that I want, although they're starting to think my requests are a little strange, I think. Um, but so I use books. I use periodicals from the time period, journals, correspondence, maps, the internet, the whole thing. And some books, the problem is you can't find material. So The Orphan's Tale, which was my previous book, there were gaps in what I could find. The Lost Girls of Paris, there are many good books that have been written on the nonfiction side about SOE and the women. There's one called A Life in Secrets that's about Vera Atkins, for example, that was very good. So for this project, the challenge was not finding the material, the challenge was stopping. Because there was so much, so much had been written about so many women and so many heroic exploits that I really could have just gone down the rabbit hole of research and never gotten the writing done. So I warned you my answers were long. Other questions? Everyone's like, I'm too scared to ask anything. I have a related question to what you just said. I'm always interested in, in knowing um, how a writer um, goes through the process of creating the story, aside from the research and so forth. Why do you select the particular character, and then how does it kind of evolve as you get into the process? So it's a really interesting question about writing process. I only learned a few years ago there are two kinds of writers. They say plotters and pantsers. Has anyone else heard this? So plotters are those dear souls that write in a linear chronological fashion with an outline and make it look nice before it goes on. That's not me. I'm a pantser. Pantser stands for seat of the pants. That's how we write. And here's what I do. I open a computer after I've started some research, and I have an image in my mind, and I go blah for like four to six months. And um, it's inspired by a woman named Natalie Goldberg. She has a book on writing called Writing Down the Bones that takes a Zen Buddhist approach to writing where you don't let your hand stop to edit. And so other people have called it less artfully throwing up on the page um, because that's what you do. You just have like 
40 or 60,000 words that come out in any random order. And then when that document gets too unwieldy, that's when I do the chapters and the outlines. But the reason this is important for your question is that people say if you're a plotter, it's more like you build scaffolding. And if you're a pantser, it's more like an archeological dig where you've picked up this item and you don't know what it is and you're kind of dusting it off. So I don't do character outlines or, or profiles ahead of time. I meet my characters through that blah of words. That's kind of how I get to know them. But this is the worst way possible to write a book because the editing is terrible. So I don't recommend it if you don't have to do it. Other question? Talk a little bit about what draws you to write fiction as opposed to, say, history of this time period. So it's sort of interesting. I mean, I do have a history degree, but I've known since I was a little kid that I wanted to be, an, you know, a novelist and write. It's always been fiction for me, um, and uh, so it's it's hard for me to step out of that and even even think why. But I will tell you one question that's come up, kind of related for me and for the other historical fiction writers, is like, why is there so much historical fiction, and particularly set around World War II? Because although I've been doing this for a long time, it's never been more popular. And I'm a huge consumer of these books as well as a producer. Uh, and a few years ago, uh, when All the Light We Cannot See came out and The Nightingale, I, I sort of paused and said, like. Is historical is World War II historical fiction done? Because I'm not sure anyone can do it any better than they did. And then I looked at the New York Times, and like four of the top 15 were World War II books. So uh, I thought there was still some room left. But in seriousness, there's a couple of reasons that I think fiction really resonates in this period of time. And one is that remember at the beginning of my remarks, I talked about when communism ended in Eastern Europe. What, there's a lot of archival material available to us now as researchers that was not available back then. So it really breeds the material. And also, um, you know, as the generation of survivors gets up there in years, it, there's this impetus to tell stories, I think, even in the fiction form. But the last piece is this. As a novelist, my goal is to take you and put you in the shoes of my protagonist and have you say, what would I have done? And World War II, with its dire circumstances and stark choices, is really fertile ground for storytelling. Other questions? I would be interested, how do you develop a character? How do you go ahead? and how much personal experience do, do you use in your real life, relatives, friends, maybe enter those characters or features of those characters to your novel. Another thing is that how do you implement uh, timeless human values into your characters, even if the time period might be a little bit different? The timeless you values? Is yes. So let me say this about real life and characters. First of all, I regard my books as love songs to the people who lived through that most horrific of eras, particularly the people I met when I lived in Eastern Europe. Um, and I try and do it with a great deal of respect. But I never purport to write real stories. I mean, you've seen there's been a lot of controversy recently with some World War II books that people said were real. And they're like, well, how much was real? That's not me. Anytime someone takes one of my books and says, based on a true story, I cross it out and I say inspired by actual events. I think that distinction, I'm not going to stake the large claim of a true story. I also think as a creative person, 
real life makes for terrible plot, but it makes for wonderful setting. And so I c if I can take like all the places I've been and those peop wonderful people I've met and make it breathe life into the place, then the story tends for me to be more fictitious. Now your second question about timeless values, um, it, it really, I don't set out at the beginning of a book and say, I'm going to write a book with this theme. Oftentimes I'm sitting here in conversation with you and I'll go, oh yeah, that was what I meant about the theme. It's not very, it's not sort of a conscious thing. But when I, my last book, Orphan's Tale, came out, which was about a, a German circus, it was a true story that inspired it, of a German circus that sheltered Jews, that book came out like two months into the new administration, and I'm not being political, but the book was very much about sanctuary and shelter and refuge and our personal choices in that regard. This book, um, the theme that's really emerged for me from The Lost Girls of Paris is the trust we place in our government and whether such trust is warranted. Because this book, these women you know, and male agents went over with the best of intentions. You know, When they went to occupied Europe, their life had a life expectancy was like a few weeks at best once they went over there, but they did it because they believed they were doing the right thing for their government, and without ruining too much of the story, there's a question of whether their government was doing the right thing for them. Thank you. So I know you said you write fiction. Are you ever tempted to tell any of the stories of your family? or of your time in Europe, you know, from more of a memoir sort of perspective? So I've never considered a memoir. I don't think, you know, I sort of just run the same five mile loop to Wegmans as everybody else these days. So I don't really think I have a, a enough of a story for a memoir, but I, I have been really lucky to sort of see the world from the shoulders of giants, both when I was at the Pentagon and at the State Department, which was wonderful. Um, so two things, I'm sort of, let me think about how to answer this. My family was act interestingly not in the Holocaust, although all four of my grandparents are from Eastern Europe. They were all out before the war, although my one grandmother grew up in, in Shanghai and Harbin in China, and I used her story a bit in an anthology I was a part of called Grand Central a few years ago. I wrote about her story. Um, I'd love to write some modern things. On the nonfiction side, if I was gonna do it, I was would write about Poles and Jews after communism in the past 20 years. Um, there isn't enough bandwidth in my schedule with the law and the writing to do that. Um, and also, I think commercially, I'm a little bit constrained. I think most people are going to expect me to be in a historical fiction space at the moment. But uh, of course, we all a wish list of projects, I know, right? <laughs> Thank you for asking. You mentioned about weaving your research into your novels. Can you describe more how you go about doing that? Uh, sure. So uh, there's always these great pieces of history that I'm really super interested in as a historian. So if I can borrow an example, not to talk too much about the last book, but this is a very real example for me. In The Orphan's Tale, as I was researching it, I discovered this amazing history of Jewish circus dynasties in Europe that had all been, like families with 12 and 13 kids, the Lorches and the Blumenfeld, and they had all run these circuses. That was not my story, but I was able to make it the backstory of one of my two main characters. And I remember there being this thick paragraph about Jewish circus dynasties. And then I was asked by my publicist, they said, you know, some blog site wants, your wants a, an excerpt that talks about the circus dynasties. And I, I went back and read the book and there was no excerpt anymore because through the editing, we had like woven it in in little bits. So you have to take that big chunk and you have to kind of 
weave it in so that it's not really noticeable and there was no more big chunk. So that's kind of the goal, I think. Yes, up top. Hi, I have a question about um, being an author in the 21st century. How have you found that things are evolving in this? Um, you mentioned all those rejection letters. Um, how, what's it like managing all that, everything from PR to um, Twitter to, um, you know, figuring out your next project? And you also mentioned how sometimes it can seem like a crowded space of the historical fiction. I'm curious about how you approached all of that. I, I feel like that's a multi-pronged question, but um, what's that world like now? There Especially as a successful writer. Thank you. There's so many interesting questions embedded in what you've just said, and I don't know that I've really answered or thought about those as much, but there's many things to say. So first of all, with being an author, and I've been, my first book came out in 2007, so I've had you know, roughly 12 years to think about it. The biggest thing that's changed for me with the publishing industry, I'm really honest about these things, is that publishing has, you know, went through its own economic hard times, has become so much more competitive that they think much more closely about, there's much more of a conversation now about what they want me to write than there was a decade ago. So a decade ago, I felt like I could float an idea, they were fine with it, and now sometimes, I, they don't tell me what to write, but there's sometimes I'm really excited about something and they're like, nah, we don't think that's the next thing, and then I go looking again. So there's a little bit more there. I think the internet is a blessing and a curse, mostly a blessing. So this is going to preempt what I would have said at the end, which is that the greatest thing about the internet age is the ability for us to connect as readers and writers and have a sustained ongoing conversation. Um, we met on Twitter before I came here. Um, and so I really do invite each and every one of you to connect with me on social media, um, Facebook or Twitter or email. I'd love to be friends and talk. Um, and also, the second best thing is that there's this wonderful community of writers out there, and we all support and sustain each other. There are male writers, too, but it, there's a lot of female writers who are kind of just really generous and gracious, and, and we all help each other out, and that is very, very nourishing. The Internet can be a scary place, too, and I'll give you just two examples. Um, one of my books was reissued a few years ago, and someone on Twitter decided that it was Nazi romance, and I, this this phrase got picked up um, by uh, some pretty reputable people who had never read the book, and it started to spiral out of control. So that was quite scary. You know, the, the, I the social media can go in the wrong direction really quickly in some scary ways. That all worked out. But the other thing is that, as I told you, historical fiction is prone to mistakes. No matter how many books I write, the mistakes are all mine. And no matter how many people, you know, edit or proofread, the mistakes are all mine. But a decade ago, people would send me like a quiet email or letter about the mistakes, and now they definitely post it on Goodreads, on uh, Facebook, or in very public spaces. So, but it's all good, really. Hi. And because of the internet, uh, Andrea Peskin's uh, Facebook site is where I first, well, I knew it was coming out, but it was like, ah, I'm going to get this. <laughs> and I was just on vacation. It was the first book I listened to because I listened to all my books. So my question is, I have a couple questions. My one question is, do you listen to the narrators before you pick them? 
blew up a rubber glove to make a chicken or something. And I said, like, you're wasting medical supplies. So it deeply affected me on a personal level. And I haven't been back in many years because of kids and work. If I could get on a plane tomorrow, it's the first place I would go. Absolutely. So thank you. Out of curiosity, how long does it take you from the time you have an idea for a book to when it's finally published? So how long does it take me to write a book? So I used to write a book a year. I used to be uh, really all in for a book a year no matter what. I'm older. The books are getting harder. And I don't want to, you know, I used to go into my office at Rutgers, which is in Camden. I used to go in at like 5 a.m. on the weekends. And I, I don't ha it doesn't benefit me to do that anymore. So I've slowed down. I believe both creatively and commercially, it's better for me to do a book every two years. Creatively, because I just get that space, I have that luxury. And commercially, it takes a lot to ask people to support my book. Right now, I mean, I'm, on, I'm quiet for two years and then social media is like, ah, la, la, la. it's really loud and the radio and the tour. And I can't just ask people to do that every year. It's too much. So I enjoy slowing down. Um, unfortunately, I had that epiphany after I had already signed for my last deadline. So this book was pretty seriously overdue. But um, right now, I'd rather have a year and a half to two years between books. So we have time for just a couple more questions. Hi, uh, your time in Poland and you were dealing with reconciliation issues from the war. I was just reading today how um, there's a row between Israel and Poland. I don't know if you're aware of that, where they canceled a meeting with each other. But it was over matters of World War II. And I was wondering, from the time you were there till now, has there been a backslide in progress, or was there slow progress, or do you have an opinion on where things are with that today? I really do, and I warn you, this might be our last question, because this is probably my world's longest answer. So let me try and be concise. Um, I went to Poland in 1996, and there's really kind of two things you're talking about. One is the the survival of the community there, and the other is like the anti-Semitism and the complex history that we're really talking about. So when I went to Poland in 1996, there used to be an expression, last Jew out of Poland, turn out the lights. And what they meant was that the generation of survivors was going to die off, and that would be the end of eight or 900 years of Polish Jewry. I'm so pleased to tell you that did not happen, very much the opposite, because Poland, um, first of all, they passed a restitution law which gave back Jewish property, and where they couldn't give back property, they gave them compensation. This has helped them to support their people. They've also brought Jews from further east in Russia where, or Ukraine, where there's maybe no viable community to live in Krakow. Um, so the community there, there is a JCC and, you know, a, and a really vibrant community much bigger today than when I was there. However, there's this very complex history of what about anti-Semitism in Poland. I went over there with a Jewish star around my neck every day for two and a half years, and I never had a problem. But I was a diplomat. My Jewish friends who stayed in Poland, they all could have moved to Maryland to their sister's house 40 years ago. I mean, they really, they all had a way to come, and they chose to stay. And I'm knocking wood when I say that, that their lives are very free of persecution and terrorism. But that doesn't change the centuries of anti-Semitism that predated the war. It doesn't change any role of complicity during the war, and it doesn't change what happened afterward. There's a lot of concern about anti-Semitic rhetoric in Poland today, and, and laws saying, you know, you can't talk about it and forget it, that, is, that are very troubling to a lot of people, um, including myself. 
but I believe rather than like panicking about some sort of return, what we must do is we must engage the younger generation in conversation over there. So I urge my friends, like, don't just go visit a few concentration camps and leave. Like, go, stay for Shabbat, meet the local people, and have this dialogue, because I think it's the only way forward. Thank you so, so much for having me. I hope to see you online or elsewhere. Thank you. <laughs>